Let's pray together. Father, you are a good God. And we give you thanks and praise for how you have given to us your word so that we are not a people that base our lives on hope or opinion, that which is subjective, but rather we place our hope and joy in that which is concrete and unchanging as revealed to us in your word. God, and we've sung truth from your word. We have gathered around your table in obedience to your word. And Lord, now we turn again to your word and ask that you would speak to us. Father, would you remind us of exactly what this season is all about, the joy that this candle burning beside me represents, the table and the joy that it reminds us of. Father, would you allow us to see it together today in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to the Gospel of Matthew and find chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Over the course of the next four Sundays in our preparation for Christ's birth celebration on the 25th, we're going to walk together through Matthew's first two chapters. Now, as many of you, I'm sure, know, there are two Gospel accounts of Christ's birth in the Scriptures. One is recorded in Luke and he was a Gentile doctor who accompanied the Apostle Paul on a number of his missionary journeys and who carefully compiled a record of Christ's life initially for a most excellent Theophilus. This is who Luke addresses in his Gospel's third verse, a man of undoubted distinction and influence, but who also desired to know just who this Jesus was and how his story jived with the most prevalent philosophies of the day. And as a physician... You can only imagine Luke's account reflects a, a sensitivity to detail, clarity of thought, and care for chronology that one might expect from a man of science. And yet, Luke's record of Christ's birth isn't merely historical narrative. As one commentator notes, Luke's record of Christ's birth is written out of faith unto faith, holding up the Lord Jesus as our Savior and Redeemer. Now, I would imagine of Scripture's two nativity stories, Luke's narrative is probably the most familiar. Our family reads this account on every Christmas morning prior to our celebrations. I was actually talking about this with, uh, with Gary and Lucy and Susie yesterday afternoon at Bob and Wanda's 50th, just speaking of these narrative accounts, and Gary made the point, well, isn't Luke the story of Jesus' birth. And so this is the most familiar. And if you've read any of the children's Christmas accounts, they build most of their story on Luke's research. However, they also include the story of the Magi, which is taken out of Matthew's gospel. And it's his story, Matthew's, that we're going to study together. Now, Matthew, unlike Luke, was not a doctor, nor was he a Gentile. Matthew was one of Jesus' original disciples. He was a Jew. And prior to following Christ, he was a tax collector, which, as I'm sure you know, was a lucrative position and one that afforded him affluence as well as influence. However, Matthew's occupation also ostracized him from his own people. And so after heeding Christ's call to follow me, he notes in his gospel how his celebration party afterwards was attended by many tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners. In other words, Matthew didn't have your normal Jewish friends. He was an Audi from his own people. And so Matthew's purpose in his gospel was aimed at convincing his fellow Jews of just 
who this Jesus is, the promised Christ, the Messiah, the one whom Moses had promised his Semitic brothers and sisters all the way back in Deuteronomy 18.15, that the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. Now you must listen to him, Moses wrote. Why? Because the Lord promised, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and sisters. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything that I command him. And so Matthew's gospel is structured to demonstrate for the Jew first just how Jesus is this true Israelite and God's promised Christ, the Messiah. And to this end, Matthew highlights Jesus' life experiences and he does so as they mirrored that of Israel in the Old Testament. He records Christ going down into the Jordan River, facing temptation in the wilderness, gathering 12 disciples just like the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. He ascends a mountain to deliver a new Torah. You recall Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but now I tell you a new Torah. And then along with that, you see he even shows Christ's connection to Israel's exodus as well as, well as the Passover as we've just celebrated. Except Jesus provides both of those experiences with radically new interpretations. Matthew's Gospel, like Luke's, Mark's as well as John's for that matter, was written with a specific original audience in mind. However, ultimately, I believe that they all share a purpose that's poignantly captured by John in his gospel, chapter 20, verse 30, where he states that these things, these things, so being the fourth in our gospels, summatively considered, I believe you could insert these gospels, all of these things have been written so that by hearing these things, you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you might have life in his name. So, with that in mind, we're going to examine Matthew's first chapter this morning so that we might see together just how this Jesus is the promised Christ. So, that said, let's begin reading from verse 1 in chapter 1 where Matthew writes, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Stay with me. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, Abiad, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Iliad. Iliad, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, 
of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Now let me stop there as we observe a first point regarding the promised Christ, which is his lineage identified. His lineage identified. Matthew clearly goes to great lengths here in his first 17 verses to trace Jesus' heritage. And what's fascinating about this genealogy, were you to compare it to that of Luke's, is Matthew begins with who? Abraham. And I have to ask, because after hearing all those names, our brains are beginning to flatline. Others of us are wandering out into the parking lot, ready to get in our cars. I just have to ask. And it's true. Matthew begins with Abraham, doesn't he? While Luke begins his tree, or rather takes his tree, all the way back to Adam, as in the first man. So aren't you glad I didn't go with that one? Luke, the good doctor, he begins with Joseph in verse 23 of his third chapter, and he follows Christ's father's lineage all the way back to Adam, some 16 verses later in verse 38. Now, we don't have time this morning to consider how these two genealogies differ, except to note that they do, and to suggest a reason that they do is surely tied to the specific emphases of each of these authors. As a Gentile and a doctor, it's likely that Luke's genealogy follows a direct biological line that he sees ending at life's point of beginning. Matthew, on the other hand, as we've pointed out, is a Jew. And Matthew's writing to Jews, and thus he's probably far more concerned with the messianic prophecy and demonstrating Christ's royal heritage. And so he traces Christ's line through the principal kings of Israel so that he might demonstrate Christ's ties to the throne of David. Now, unfortunately, there are discrepancies between these two accounts, and these have been one issue that scholars have used to argue for the errancy of Scripture. They, they suggest that the gospel authors intended their genealogies to be literal, to be exact, just as we would have today if we were to present them. And therefore, the fact that they differ displays the inaccuracies of holy writ. However, what I hope we'll make clear, even in the brief consideration that we're giving these verses this morning, is that it is pure arrogance on our part to assume that the gospel author's purposes share our 21st century approach to drawing family trees. To try and impose our Ancestry.com genealogical models on, on authors who are writing with radically different intents screams hubris and ignorance. It screams hubris as it presupposes the superiority of our approach today. And it's, it screams hubris and ignorance as it imposes contemporary evaluations of accuracy on a first century culture. What I believe that Matthew provides us here in these first 17 verses is not his best efforts to trace Joseph's DNA all the way back to Abraham, but rather to demonstrate the existence of a genealogical line linking Christ, the promised Christ, with God's messianic covenants. Most importantly, the Abrahamic covenant. Now, as I'm sure you recall, God made a covenant with Israel's first patriarch, Abraham, before his name was ever Abraham, or there was a nation to call Israel. In Genesis 12, we've recorded God's calling Abram out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to a land that he would show him. In his promise to provide, God declares, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will bless you and, bless and make your name great. You will be a blessing, and I will bless all the peoples on earth through you. All peoples, 
honors will be blessed through you. And so this pledge to bless the nations through Abram was then a court, was renewed and it's recorded in Genesis 17 where there God again promises to greatly increase Abram's numbers. But in this covenant renewal, as you recall, he changes Abram's name to Abraham and adds this, that the kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So in this promise made to Israel's patriarch, God was committing to a unique relationship with a specific people marked by distinct obligations. And God later clarified these expectations as he met with Moses on Mount Sinai. In the Mosaic Covenant, God promised to provide for Israel and to be their God as long as they followed his directions and obeyed his commands. And as you know, in this covenant, God further established Israel as a nation. It was a nation constituted by written laws, governed by appointed leadership, and occupying a designated land. However, God's covenant with Moses wasn't uniquely tied to lineage, was it? Now, while it unfurled God's redemptive promises as it related to his holiness and the people's sinfulness, it wasn't until the Davidic covenant that God once again tied his promise, Christ, his messianic promise, to genealogy. And so Matthew's gospel begins by linking Christ to the Abrahamic covenant and then to the Davidic covenant. And I'm sure we're all aware of who the covenant was made with. God made this covenant with David second king of Israel, and David was known as a man after God's own heart. And it was a, to David that God promised to establish a house for you. He said, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, in this covenant in which God described David's own son Solomon and the temple that he would construct there in Jerusalem, God was also referencing a descendant who would be his son, who would build a house for his name. So a, a house not built by human hands, not a reference to that temple in Jerusalem, and whose throne would be established forever. And this promise, like that made to Abraham, was a direct reference to the Messiah, the promised Christ, the one through whom God would bless all nations, who would be a descendant of Abraham and of David, and whose throne he would assume, and whose people he would lead to victory over all of their enemies. And so as Matthew begins his gospel here, he sets out to establish the promised Christ's origin. And friends, this as we, we might be wondering this morning, some of us, you know, what, what, why does this even matter? I mean, as Americans who live in a 21st century, how do covenants made to Jewish patriarchs all these many years ago have any bearing on our lives, particularly as it pertains to this season, this Advent season? And the answer is that we are the nations referenced in God's promise to Abraham. We're the people over whom David's descendant would reign forever. The promised Messiah wasn't a culturally exclusive political leader for a time. He's a globally engaging Savior who presently saves and whose first arrival we celebrate in a few weeks, but whose return date, while unknown, is a guarantee according to Scripture. And when he comes the second time, 
and a final time. It's, it's not going to be as a helpless babe, but it's coming as a conquering warrior on a white horse before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And on that great and dreadful day, we will all be made to stand before this promised Christ. And he'll pass judgment on every single one as pertains to God's covenants. And our only hope on that day will be in Christ who fulfilled those covenants on our behalf and has extended now his righteousness to us by grace through faith to all who repent of their sin and believe in him. Matthew begins by identifying the Messiah's lineage. And before we move on to make a second observation this morning regarding the promised Christ, let me point out another point of interest here just in regards to Matthew's genealogy. You notice what he says there in verse 3? Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was who? Tamar. In, in the previous generations that he's listed, Matthew never mentions who the mother was. However, here with Judah, he does. Interestingly enough, Matthew does it again in verse 5, where he records Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Then again, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And then this form is repeated one final time, verse 6, where Matthew writes, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, for all who are familiar with the story of Scripture, I would imagine you recognize these ladies' names, don't you? Tamar's story is sordid, to say the least. Rahab was a foreigner with an immoral occupation. Ruth was also a foreigner, a Moabitess, no less, pagan idol worshiper. And then the mother of Solomon is Bathsheba. And Matthew says that she was Uriah's wife when she became pregnant by the king the first time. And it was only after David had Uriah murdered, Bathsheba brought to his palace that their first child then died, that she then became the mother of Solomon. So the point here, Matthew, is his list has clearly not been drawn up to present to us Christ as the perfect progeny with the perfect ancestry. Jesus' heritage is scandalous. And if Matthew were trying to present Jesus as the promised Christ based upon Semitic pedigree, he could never have included these names. And if the Messiah had been intended for a single culture, then these names could never have made the list. But Matthew knew the truth, that this promised Christ came to save all who repent of their sin and believe in his name. And this is why I believe that he begins his gospel in the very first chapter by including these ladies' names in the genealogy, and it's why he concludes his gospel in what way? The final phrases of Matthew's gospel provide us with Christ's great commission to go make disciples of who? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that we've been commanded. And surely I am with you always, Christ promised, to the very end of the age. So this morning, as we consider Matthew's focus, the question we need to ask ourselves, is Christ our Messiah? For he is clearly portrayed as such in this first chapter. We've identified the promised Christ's lineage. So now let's see his true father clarified. A second point of observation this morning. Let me continue reading now from verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. 
Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Having shown that the Messiah's heritage tied to Joseph's line might be traced all the way back through David to Abraham, Matthew very carefully now establishes who his actual father is. Because you notice how our author never refers to Joseph as Jesus' father. In verse 18, he explains that Mary is Christ's mother and that she's pledged to be married to Joseph, but she's pregnant before they ever come together. And Matthew carefully words his account so as to avoid any misunderstanding possible regarding who Jesus' father truly is. He also points out how he, Joseph, initially perceives Mary's situation as grounds for divorce as established by the Mosaic law. And rather than having her stoned, which would have been the, the Old Testament penalty for adultery, or repudiating her for her, her infidelity in a public trial, which would have been the more legal, contemporary legal means of action, Joseph decides to avoid the trial, spare Mary from shame, while he still wants to separate himself from his errant wife. However, before he's able to follow through on any of these plans, Matthew tells us that Joseph is visited by an angel of the Lord who explains what's really going on and who this child's father truly is. God. So after waking up with that dream, Joseph does as he's been instructed and he takes Mary home as his bride. Church, I think to this point often doesn't strike us as earth-shattering because on one hand, all that's going on here, all that's taking place is Joseph accepting Mary's condition, giving her his name such that now Christ shares his lineage. Joseph isn't the father, and we can clearly see that. And, such, you know, and so he does, however, accept the child. He marries the baby's mother prior to the child's birth. He also pronounces the name Jesus. And so in these two acts, that of marrying and of naming, this completed Jesus' legal adoption in the Jewish culture. And so what Matthew is, is making sure that his original readers understand is that Jesus has an official link. He's legally bound to Abraham and David through Joseph. But at the same time as this seems insignificant, what Matthew is claiming here as he clarifies who Christ's father is is the most earth-shattering revelation ever. This is the event, Christ's birth, from which our doctrine of the incarnation is drawn. The very foundation of our entire salvation depends on this event. A child whose father is holy God and whose mother is holy human. Two natures, both fully present and fully expressed in a single person. Jesus is the God-man who is like us in every way. He felt pain. 
Jesus knew disappointment. He experienced grief, sorrow, frustration, anger, hope, joy, peace. He sang. He prayed. He talked, walked, stay, ate, slept, laughed, cried. He, Jesus is fully human. And at the same time, he is fully God. He walked on water. He commanded the wind and the waves to be still. He fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He healed the blind. He made the lame to walk, opened the ears of the deaf, and he raised, raised the dead. Jesus is fully God and fully human. And church, it was only as such, it was only as God incarnate that Christ could save sinful men and women from death. For as like us in every way, he was able to stand in our stead. Because if Christ had only resembled us in his appearance, then he couldn't have served as our substitute. For as, only an exact replacement could be justly employed. Because if we were to substitute ourselves with something similar, hypothetically speaking, something similar but not exactly the same, then the difference between the original and the chosen substitute would always remain unresolved, wouldn't it? Un unpaid, unatoned to use the language of salvation. And this difference then would always merit the punishment that the original had deserved, and eternally so, which in this case would be eternal suffering and the wrath of God for the failure of whatever was unatoned between the original and the chosen substitute, which would mean a life of perpetual, eternal hell. But as fully human, Christ could stand in our place, paying our debt, facing our punishment and as fully God he could pay all our debts once and for all so he didn't simply atone for one person's sins on one occasion Christ paid for the sins of all who will repent and believe for forever so that now we who are in Christ Jesus are guaranteed eternal life from the moment that we come to faith in him because it's been provided to us by God by grace through faith in Jesus do you know this hope this morning this this guarantee from God or are we this morning still battling in our own strength to try and merit God's favor? Are we working on the premise of God's grace and our efforts or merely God's grace? Because if you are working on any of your efforts, please hear the gospel this morning as it was proclaimed all those many years ago. Your efforts will merit you nothing but death. Because on our own, we're incapable of saving ourselves. It's only by God's grace gift of His Son like us, as we've just seen, in every way except without sin. He came, lived, died, was buried, and three days later rose from the dead. And if you repent of your sin and believe, then, then you will be saved. Matthew identifies Christ's lineage. He clarifies for his original readers Christ's Father. And then a third observation this morning. He fulfills, Christ fulfills all prophesied. The fulfillment of all prophesied. And, and here I believe we, we clearly see how the author, our author, Matthew's intent differs from that of Luke. So Matthew tells us what took place, as does Luke. However, Matthew also explains why. In verse 22, he reveals that all this took place, with all this being what he's just stated for us in verse 22, or 21 rather, which is Mary's pregnancy as a virgin due to the Holy Spirit the particular name that the child to be born would hold, and his redemptive work of saving his people from their sins. Matthew explains that all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And this reference is taken, as many of you know, from the prophet Isaiah, 
And it's recorded in his seventh chapter and 14th verse where he proclaims in, in words identical. Therefore, the Lord will himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel. Now this prophecy was recorded by Isaiah and it was made during the reign of King Ahaz of Judah some 700 years prior. And it was given then as a pledge that God would rescue Israel from their enemies. Judah was facing possible annihilation. And so God sent his prophet, Isaiah, to inform Ahaz of his promise to save his people. In addition, Isaiah was to ask the king to give a sign, a sign by which God would show himself to be faithful to his word, to do all that he'd said. But the, chain, the king chickens out. He doesn't do it. So the Lord himself promises a sign. And friends, in our 21st century church world of nativity plays, of choral festivals and lessons and carols, I believe we, we're so familiar with these promises that we often fail to give real thought to what this prophecy reflects. What God promised through Isaiah all those years before was so crazy, so unlikely that unless God brought it to pass, it could never have been. Because first of all, virgins don't conceive. And we know that. Even though science has tried to come up with unique scenarios to undermine this miraculous event, at the end of the day, this is a supernatural occurrence. And then second, just the fact that Mary became pregnant doesn't guarantee the birth of a boy, does it? And granted, you've got a 50-50 here. But still, this, I believe this is just further evidence of God's hand's guidance of this entire event. And then third, the child's name. Now, I'm not a statistician, so I'm not going to attempt to give you the odds of such an event occurring and doing so in fulfillment of a statement made to this effect some 700 years prior. Suffice to say that it's negligible. But the point that Matthew is making here is that God brought Christ's birth about just as he had promised and for the purpose he had promised, to save his people from their sins. And Emmanuel, this this is the gift that we celebrate this season. Sadly, for most in our culture, while they too give gifts, their celebration is focused on a host of other things. But I can appreciate this misdirected emphasis because the scriptures make clear until we have Christ open our heart's eyes to the reality of our sin, we're dead to all things spiritual. We're dead to God. We're lifeless. We're blind, according to Paul, as he wrote to the Ephesians. We're incapable of comprehending who God is and all that he's done for us. And so I can appreciate why our country, our, country, our world, on the whole, is fixated with Santa, elves, reindeer, snowmen, and stuff. I don't like it, but I get it. What grieves my heart, though, is the fact that there are many in the church and who call themselves, consider themselves Christians this year, whose celebration, while being decorated with scenes that depict the story that we just examined, will fail to acknowledge Christmas's ties to the cross. May this not be true of us, church, because in this very first chapter, Matthew takes great pains to show us why Christ came to save us from our sins. And in his final chapter, so that you can't get out of the book without being reminded of why Christ came, he commissions his disciples to go and share that very gospel with the world. And so church, the promised Christ, whose birth we celebrate, came to seek and save the lost. This morning, are you lost? 
If so, hear the good news. Christ was born to save you. And if you are found, be reminded of the good news that Christ died to save you. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you praise because we've been saved by your grace. Lord, this morning, if there are any who have never acknowledged their need of life in Jesus, Lord, this morning as we have seen from your word, your purpose in coming was to save. Lord, not to establish a holiday on which we give gifts to one another and feel better, but rather to begin a journey culminating in an event by which people would be given access to life eternal, graciously afforded us, not through any efforts of our own. Lord, the greatest gift ever. And it is so easy in our time to, to get caught up in the material things that have come to cloud this holy celebration. Father, may we be reminded of why you came, Jesus. And Lord, for those who've never acknowledged this, and maybe this morning is the first time to recognize that life comes through Christ, Lord, we pray that you would, having your gospel proclaimed, use that word to bring life. Father, and for we who are your children, might we be reminded of just the beauty of this holiday, Lord, and how we have the hope that's being celebrated, misreflected, and yet still true. We can point all those whom we encounter to the reason for the season, to use the cliché. Father, might we be vocal about why Christmas is so special. Lord, connecting it to what Matthew has shown us, a promised Christ's arrival to save men and women from sin. Lord, this is why you were born. This is why we have hope. Lord, this is why we sing. And we praise you for this gift who is Jesus.